Hello and welcome to a flat pack history of Sweden, the podcast that chronologically charts Swedish history from the first humans arriving here until the present day. I am Chris. And I'm Elsa. Our most recent episodes have been a bit special. We celebrated our one year anniversary last time and before that we had a special look at Swedish urban bomb shelters. So it's been a few weeks since we talked about Sweden in the years 1100s, uh, which is where we've gotten up to on our chronological journey. Indeed, in the previous episodes on our chronological journey, we talked about the first Swedish king, Olaf Hörtgunung, and his father, Erik Segersel, before we visited Sweden's oldest town, Sigtuna, that they helped found. It was there where Olaf Hörtgunung took an important step to formalising Sweden as a kingdom when he started minting coins with his face on it, which was super important. So those episodes have taken us up to roughly the middle of the 1020s, and that's where we'll continue from today. In the next couple of episodes, we'll be covering the period that followed Olaf Hörtgunung's reign, or to put it in actual years, we'll be covering the 1020s until the 1120s, more or less. And whilst at first glance this might seem like one of the less eventful periods in Swedish history, especially if you're looking for actual dates of historically significant events, the more we've dug into it, the more interesting facts we've uncovered. So I'm confident these will be some exciting episodes. But first, as always, shall we do our Swedish phrase of the week? We definitely should. And this week's phrase is Eget berum lukta illa. In English, that is praise for oneself smells badly. <laughs> Here, I think we really notice Sweden's uh, sort of very Lutheran past that it's seen as a bad thing to boast or to even think highly of your own achievements. To me, that's indicative of this strict practice of keep your head down and work hard and don't think you're anything special that underlines uh, this culture. Yeah, that's probably true because you do say it to me a lot when <laughs> I get excited about certain things. Yeah, that's that's true. Say you get a question right on a quiz show we're watching and you go, yeah, I'm so good. I tell you that praise for oneself smells badly. You You shouldn't say that. Yeah, you probably see it as your job to keep me in place or something. <laughs> keep your ego in check. Well, that that said, you you are a very modest person, so it's it's not something that I say that much. Just not in quiz shows. <laughs> no, no, just you like to point out when you get stuff right. Yeah. Now, all jokes aside, I think this phrase might be indicative of something in Swedish culture, like I said, that I'm kind of in two minds about. Because on the one hand, I think it's good to be taught not to be boastful and talk about your own achievements endlessly. I mean, no one likes a person who just keeps talking about how great he or she is. But at the same time, I think the attitude that this phrase illustrates can have negative consequences if you're not allowed to say good things about yourself or celebrate your own achievements then that can be detrimental to your self-esteem. Yeah, and I think that you can see that when it comes to things like job applications and things like that. So British people also have this problem in, in lots of ways. And 
when you see British people's job applications, you know, lots of people are saying, yeah, but tell me that you're good at doing stuff. Whereas an American would be, oh, I'm a master of getting things done and blah, 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 blah. Whereas a British person would say, I have experience of doing this. And it's like, yeah. yeah, but are you good at it? I mean, I, I actually, that's, it's funny you should mention Americans. I know we have uh, many American listeners and I have always envied the way that uh, Americans, obviously this is a generalization across a broad culture and a, a big nation, uh, but that they can say like, I remember, yeah, having American friends and colleagues saying like, yeah, it's one of my real strengths. Like, I'm really good at that. And I'm like, oh, well, I wish I could. Like, I I think that I am really good at certain things. I just, it, it, I think it smells badly if I say it, because that's what I've been taught. Yeah. Anyway, onwards with history, maybe. Like we said, the next couple of episodes, we will be looking at events, regions, and developments in the time period from roughly 1020 to 1120. And to start us off, we thought it'd be good to spend the first episode looking at the period from a bit of a bird's eye view, take a general stock check of where we're at and what structural developments in Swedish society were most noticeable? Yeah, because whilst lots of things happen in this period, there aren't too many sort of big picture blockbuster events that have nothing to do with the kings. And even a lot of the kings and uh, and noble people that we'll cover sort of don't really have much on them. So it's good to have this introduction episode before we start looking at things in detail, like the king's reigns, who we do actually have a little bit more information about, or Christianity and how its development begins to shape the life of both the kings and queens and also the day-to-day -day people living in Sweden at the time. Exactly. Uh, whilst we use a variety of different sources when we prepare an episode, for this episode I would like to mention one book in particular that has been very useful in my research, and that is Dick Harrison's book Svensk Historia Medeltid, or in English that would be Swedish History, the Middle Ages. It's a very good book to read, to get an overarching view of Sweden and developments in Swedish society at this time. Professor Harrison will no doubt be a familiar name to most of our Swedish listeners. Uh, he's a well-known historian, currently professor at the University of Lund, and he often features in non-academic media, as well as obviously his academic work, uh, he features with articles in popular history magazines, newspapers. Uh, you see him on TV every so often. Yeah, he did a good program on Alastaina that we mentioned in the very first few episodes uh, yeah. that we watched, which was really good. And I really appreciate his accessible writing style. And obviously, I'm always happy to get an opportunity to mention a fellow Skåning, because I think we're both from this southernmost county of Sweden. So we're in Sweden and it's now the 1020s, pretty much bang on a thousand years ago, actually. So what will we see around us when we start picturing Sweden in the 1020s? In English, the period that we're just about to start, one that lasts until roughly 1250, is sometimes referred to as the High Middle Ages. However, this term is not used that much in Sweden. As I'm sure we've mentioned before, categorizing time periods 
in history into these units with different names is an inexact science and it depends on where in the world you went to school or where you've done more of your history studies be that as a hobby or academically you might have come across different terms and different names for different things still since we are an english-speaking podcast we thought it was worth mentioning this phrase this term the high middle ages that's all I wanted to say. Back to your rhetorical question, Chris. What do we see around us? Well, across Europe, we see an increase in population and an increase in urbanization, meaning that there are more people around and more of these are moving to live and work in towns and cities. There were significant scientific and scholastic advancements in this period, with the first universities in Europe being founded, in Bologna, Paris and Oxford, for example, and the Hindu-Arabic numerals, the way we physically write down numbers that we're familiar with today, such as 1, 2 and 3, they were introduced to Europe in the end of this period. So we've moved on from the Roman numerals that we all know and love. <laughs> that, that no one except you loves. No, true. We're coming up to a period where in the UK, the Norman conquest with the Battle of Hastings will happen in 1066. Spoilers. Uh, I hope they're getting prepared. And this sees the end of the Anglo-Saxon period and the start of England being ruled in conjunction with heirs of France by the Normans. And this will also see the death of the last true Viking king in a lot of people's opinions with Harold Hardrada as he dies at the Battle of Stamford Bridge and um, we'll touch on that on our episodes on the kings of Sweden at that time when we get to it. Interesting. Yes and on the Iberian Peninsula where modern day Spain and Portugal are we see the re-emergence of Christian kingdoms after centuries of colonization and rule by the Moors who were Muslim. Yeah this is a period of important changes within Christianity something we will cover in more detail in a future episode because it ends up having an impact on Sweden as well. But just to mention it briefly now, this is the period when we see the famous Crusades to the Holy Land, modern-day Israel and Palestine, with the intention to re-establish Christian rule there. Very violent indeed. It is also during this period when we have the definite east-west split within the Christian church, which results in the formation of Roman Catholicism in Western Europe, which Sweden will belong to, and the Orthodox Church in the east. So if you're not super familiar with Christian terms, my sort of way of remembering this is that the Roman Catholic Church has the Pope, in Rome, and the Orthodox Church has their patriarch in Constantinople. Like also said, much more on that on how it affects Sweden in a later episode where we'll look at Christianity uh, especially. So now we know a bit of what's going on in the rest of Europe, we'll return to Sweden and look at what is significant for the lives of the people there. The first thing you mentioned when talking about Europe as a whole, the increase in population is arguably also what is the most significant change in Sweden during this period. Uh, we get more Swedes. Lots of little Swedish babies are born. And this, the population increase, will go hand in hand with what Professor Harrison argues is the most important aspect of medieval society, both for daily life and for the power structures in society, namely land. 
So during this period, and in fact into the 1350s, there is a continuous expansion of the ownership of land, and this expansion involves both an increased use of already existing cultivated land and the start of using new, previously wild land for farming and, well, just living on. And I guess these things, the expansion of land and the increase in population, naturally go hand in hand. If you have more land, you can afford to have more children and help feed them with the food from your new land. But also these kids need more land to feed their kids and expand off as they create new families themselves. So it sort of keeps growing and growing as families grow. Yeah, it's really a a snowball effect in that sense. There is no shortage of land as such in Sweden. There are plenty of unsettled and unexplored areas left. But it's hard work for the people in this period to clear this wild land. They have to do it by hand, obviously, uh, with an axe and by burning. They clear trees and bushes and shrubbery to make the land farmable and there's next to no sort of formal overall organization that structures and administers this but rather it's up to the farmer and his wife uh, to grab an axe and get hacking because of course sweden is pretty much entirely forest at this point so exactly yeah it's gonna take a lot of time and that hacking and burning was exactly what they did in the i think it was the bronze age remember when we go back when they started burning and reburning the land to make it fresh again and taking up new land so it's sort of an industrialized well not industrialized but more intensive sort of almost national effort to get this done but one that is led by the people themselves rather than the government telling them to go and build these new homes in places. Some areas of Sweden see a virtual population explosion at this time. Areas that had previously been very sparsely inhabited or even uninhabited, like the inland counties of Helsingland, about halfway up the country if you look at modern-day Sweden, they suddenly have lots of people living there. Or the inland county of Småland in south-central Sweden, right next to the Danish areas, where there's loads of heavy forest that's cleared to make room for more and more farmland around the already existing small villages. And the land, or rather the use of land, was the very foundation for people's lives. In a way, the land dominated the people as much as the people dominated the land. Life was still largely about finding food and surviving, as simple as that. People's lives, what happened when and how their day, year, and even their entire lifetime was structured ultimately came down to the need to grow, prepare, and cook food so that you could eventually eat food and survive. Yeah, it really is quite simple, but at the same time, in all its simplicity, is what from now on, actually all the way pretty much up until the Industrial Revolution happens, centuries from now, becomes the basis for Sweden's entire societal system and power structures. This land was the basis for resources in society and thus the control of the resources and the land was where power originated, both for individuals like the farmers, but also all the way up to kings, the church and the emerging nobility. They all trace the basis for their power back to this land. You mentioned the nobility there. They haven't quite entered the scene yet. We still 
have stormen of local powerful persons that more like what existed in the Viking period because a formalized Swedish nobility haven't yet entered the scene. Uh, they will soon though and they will become very important so uh, just put a pin in that for now. Yeah, it's quite interesting and you can see a lot of this stuff happening in the sagas because Denmark and Norway have a large nobility in comparison to Sweden and this is probably because their monarchies have been much more strictly hereditary for quite a long time. So all these brothers and uncles and cousins of kings, they're still in the picture and they get rewarded with titles and powers and so we see these jarls and earls in the stories that come up whereas Sweden doesn't really have that opportunity when you're just electing a random guy who happens to be the most powerful person in that decade rather than it drifting down between the the things so you could imagine that if Olaf Hörkonung and Erik Sägesel were uh, kings in Norway they their brothers and second sons would have had these powerful titles where yeah. in Sweden they're sort of just hanging around waiting to see if they'll be elected rather than yeah. it them expecting to have power. It's less formalized here. Yeah but we'll talk about that a lot later on because it would be good to go back to the point about the population increase and expansion of land just for a little bit more because this is all made possible thanks to some improved technology not just in Sweden but across all Europe and now, when we think of the word technology, we might think of some really fancy stuff like launching a satellite with nanocomputers in it or 3D printers. But technology, and especially the technology we're talking about now, is much more basic, but that doesn't mean it isn't important. It's actually fundamental. Yeah, there is no 3D printer without first the ironclad spade, so to say. Everything builds on something that came before. If we didn't invent the ironclad spade, I don't think we'd ever have managed to develop other ideas to the level where we now have 3D printers. Oh, I, you're absolutely right. I think we should take a moment and appreciate the spade. Yeah, because the spade was really actually quite vital for this expansion of land and the increase in population that we see in this period. Because as we saw earlier, land was claimed from the wild to make these farms out of what was woodland or just other not really hospitable areas of land. So having something as simple as a spade that was covered in iron so it doesn't break as easier was really important for the people who had nothing else to use. In fact, there was an increased use of iron in general during this period, not just on spades and shovels, but also on the blade of a thing called an ard plough. We should say, for those of you who, perhaps like me, are not super familiar with farming technology, an odd plough is a more old-fashioned kind of plough that, unlike an ordinary plough, doesn't have the thing that turns the soil around. Uh, an odd plough just has the essentially a stick that goes down in the ground and loosens it up but it doesn't turn it so it's a less efficient plow uh, but it's still used to loosen up the soil to prime it for sowing we should go back in time and ask your great-grandparents who owned a farm to give us a, a little tip there are generations of people in my family looking down on me right now crying probably and being very offended by my lack of farming knowledge until like two generations back everyone in my family worked on farms and now i don't know what an art plow is 
Sweden didn't have what we now see as a normal kind of plow until much later in history. So this odd plow, this more simple plow, was an essential tool in farming and by making its blade stronger with iron, that was vital for increased productivity on the farms. Yeah, and the improvements of tools like the odd plough, the spade and the shovel and the axe that happened now made it possible for these Swedes to clear more land faster and cultivate them more efficiently on the new land that they're creating. And it wasn't just physical tools that changed and improved thanks to the new technology. New techniques were also introduced about how to use these tools that led to better farming as well. The practice of lay land, which is basically that you leave a plot of land that you've previously cultivated to rest for a year or two was introduced more formally. We saw, like again, back in the Bronze Age, where they sort of had an idea of how this would be good for the farm, but it was more from necessity rather than making improvements. And by letting this land rest for a bit, you can increase its strength or productivity, so to speak, for the next time around when it's used. So this is the point where Swedes are really starting to understand how this works in an ecological sense. And it meant you could get much more out of the land that you had than previously. In fact, during this period, different systems for lay land is developed in different areas of Sweden. So they're coming up with new technology locally rather than one big idea spreading all around Sweden. This is when Swedes also learn the new technology when it comes to digging ditches during this time, meaning that they can drain surface water more effectively from their farms and thus get access to more and better land as well. So it's, it's all these kind of modern techniques coming from the new technologies and mixing them all up together to make your farms even better. And because farm ownership and land ownership becomes more important as we go through this period for the societal power structures, we also get more and better ways of partitioning plots of land from each other during this period. So related to this, it also becomes more important to measure the plots of land that different people have and use. And we see new names popping up in various parts of Sweden for how these land areas were categorized depending on what size they were so it's all starting to get really quite in depth and quite how you would imagine farming is today and it is today but yeah we're coming up to a period where in Östergötland the county south of Stockholm this is full of very rich farmland and they use the measurement Attung which further north around Lake Mälaren and the counties of Gästrikland and Uppland, they use the term Markland instead. And if you go all the way down to Denmark, they would have used land titles called Boll. So, yeah, all these different areas of land and for their farms are called different things, but they essentially mean the same thing. So there's no unity in terms of what name is used, but there is a unity throughout in the sense that having these terms and applying them to know how much land belongs to whom, that becomes increasingly important. It became especially important because this period sees the introduction of more formalized taxes and fees to the church, and if these were to be paid according to the size of someone's land, well, then the need to know how to measure that land and have an agreed upon definition of the size of the land became necessary. Yeah, so you can just imagine the guy from the king comes around or the church comes around and says, 
oh, who owns this atom? And then it's like, oh, Bjorn actually owns the, these five atoms. All right, well, then Bjorn owes us five cows and a barrel sheep. of grain. Barrel of sheep. <laughs> and a barrel of sheep. Yeah. So, yeah, it, that's why it's being used. It's not just for fun. It's got practical uses. Yeah, definitely. It's also during this period with the need to define land ownership that we get a wealth of new laws and some of Sweden's first written down legal texts, they deal with these matters of land ownership. But that's a little bit in the future. It doesn't happen until sometime in the 12th century. So I think we'll, we'll leave that for now, but it will come up in future episodes. I must say, when I read and hear about these things, the developments in farming and structures related to land, I'm struck by how late in developing Sweden seemed to have been. I mean, they dug ditches in ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia hundreds, if not thousands of years earlier, and we're only now getting to grips with how to do it properly? Like, what have we been up to? I can't help but the feeling that we're a bit stupid. Oh, I don't think the Swedes were necessarily stupid, but they just developed things in different ways. And it's all based on the conditions and necessity because the ancient Egyptians were having to you know, feed loads and loads more people than the middle-aged Swedes were. And all this kind of thing is, is all, yeah, it comes from necessity. Yeah, you're, you're, I know, you're absolutely right. It's a simplified way to view things to say that just because we were still clubbing bears while elsewhere they were busy building pyramids one was more stupid or more clever that's not i know that's not how history work but still way to go sweden for finally getting on board the ditch digging train so new technologies improved tools more people and more land is effectively what we get when we look at sweden in this period and in turn, all of these leads to changes in what the landscape actually looked like, because these areas that had previously been wilderness were now inhabited, and south and central Sweden were dominated by farms, crofts, and villages, and people have to travel between them to get to places. You will see the impact of humanity on these previously uninhabited places. And whilst there is an overall change, there are still large variations from one part of Sweden to the other. It's not a uniform process. In a time where life depended on the land and on farming, it's important to bear in mind that Sweden is a long country from north to south, and the conditions for farming are very different in different parts of the country. So in the south, where Orsa's from, the land looks like pretty much uh, anywhere does in northern Germany or the Netherlands. It's flat, it's suitable for growing crops like wheat and rye, whereas in the north, you have what's known as the Kalfjell, mountainous areas where no trees grow and you can't pretty much grow anything you're absolutely right and these vast differences are obviously still with us today even though because we're not so entirely dependent on farming as we were in the 11th and 12th century it doesn't affect us in the same way it used to but I remember that this was really brought home to me uh, last year when I was way up north uh, for some work. So I'm from a town on the south coast and my parents have a fig tree in their garden. So when I'm at their house, I can eat homegrown figs. 
And then I went up north to the area around the river Tornio that runs along the Swedish-Finnish border up north. And I saw thousands of reindeers in the wild. But no figs. But no figs. So we have figs and reindeers in the same country. Now, that's pretty extraordinary. Sweden looks like a little place on the map, and it is, but it's just so stretched out north to south that you get vastly different nature in the different areas. This is a good reminder, the comparison with the figs and the reindeer, that's a good reminder of how different conditions are in different parts of the country and how difficult it is to make generalizations of Sweden as a country, especially at this stage in history where that we're talking about now. Yeah, and just if you just think about people's day-to-day lives, in the last two or three weeks, we've had loads of snow that is coming up to almost our knees when we're walking around some in some areas, whereas your parents have had no snow at all. Yeah. And so it's just the clothes we have to wear, the effort of going from place A to B, even today, is totally different depending on where you are in the country. And we're in Stockholm, which is still considered the south, or not just considered, it is geographically the south of the country. So people who live actually up north, they've had snow for months now and probably laughing at what we consider to be a lot of snow. Well, there was a great guy on the news earlier <laughs> yeah. this week, um, some old guy who was probably about 80 years old. He was in a place where in Sweden it was minus 39 Celsius this week and they interviewed him and he wasn't wearing a woolly hat. He was just wearing like a baseball cap. And he said, I'm not even wearing any thermal trousers because it's not that bad, really. And everybody else is thinking, oh, wow, you're crazy. That's so cold. And he's just like, meh. And I think they had had the coldest temperature in the year that night. That's why the TV went to interview him. And we are sort of talking minus 30 degrees. But yeah, old, old guy was just still out there in a baseball cap. Yeah, so this is one half of this image to keep in mind when we talk about different areas of Sweden, because in the north, where cultivating crops is more difficult, farming was, to a greater extent, basically based around cattle. There wasn't much land-based farming. And during this period that we're talking about now, there was also a development in more northern areas of Sweden, a system called Fairbodrift, which I think we've talked in a previous episode. Mm, Briefly. Yeah, yeah. very briefly. Um, But we'll remind you, this is where... Cattle were taken by their farmers to graze in one area during the summer and then brought them back to another area during winter. So they built little sort of temporary huts near these grazing areas, so which they called Fairbuddha, a practice which made the landscape look quite different there to the more southerly areas. Indeed, in the south, there was not the same need to herd cattle from one area to another, uh, so we didn't get these little huts uh, because the cattle could be herded on meadows closer to the farm yeah presumably sometimes they didn't even have to move at all they just moved when the grass was running out and they needed to go and eat some fresh grass somewhere else and speaking of cattle we're not talking about very large herds of cattle it's been estimated that most farmers in this period didn't really own many more than four or five cows or oxen maybe if they were really lucky they maybe had an auroch 
from uh, from Poland. Oh, <laughs> I'd forgotten about the auroch. Yeah. I've not come across any aurochs in my research, so maybe not. No, because they die out in the 16 or 1500s, I think. So maybe mm. they're still only in, in Poland or so yeah. at the time. But yeah, maybe they had an auroch. And also a handful of smaller cattle like sheep, goats and pigs and things like that. Sheep in particular were very popular because they served the dual purpose as both a source of food and clothing. And when we talk about other animals, horses were quite a luxury and they weren't even really used much even in warfare in Sweden until at least the 1200s. Speaking of animals, something that I found quite interesting in the sense that I had never thought of it uh, when I was doing research for this episode, uh, that was how important beekeeping was. And when you think of it, it does become self-evident because we haven't started to import sugar from sugar canes yet. And even when we do, it becomes a huge luxury because sugar canes only grow very far from Sweden. So it's uh, quite tricky to import it. Also, we haven't started growing sugar beets yet. We don't do that until the 1800s. So honey is really the only sweetener that Swedes would have access to. Oh yeah, all this sugar is centuries away. Yeah, and I'm a massive sweet tooth myself, so I can appreciate that they spent so much time and effort looking after their bees to make sure that they could have a little bit of a sweet flavor to some of their food and drinks. Yeah, there was a big buzz around it. (laughs) (laughs) On the topic of food, what did the Swedes of this period, the early high middle ages, eat? What do you think they ate, Chris? Fish. (laughs) You're absolutely right. (laughs) I'm laughing because Chris, since we moved to Sweden, Chris is... Not entirely on board with the very fish-heavy diet of uh, traditional Swedish cuisine. But yes, Swedes did start to eat less meat during this period. And instead, herring, your favorite food. No. (laughs) It's a shame this is audio because you can't see the face that Chris is pulling as soon as I mention herring. But herring becomes a staple food for poorer people, whereas the richer people, they can afford to eat salmon, cod, and eal. Why don't we eat eel? Because they, they, we've fished too much eel, and because of uh, what, global warming, the eels are dying out. But they still, they're still around. There's hardly any eel in the Baltic Sea left. Mm. But can you buy it in shops? You can, there's a small, small quota that's you're still allowed to buy it. We eat it in the South for Christmas. But a couple of years ago, my family made the decision to stop eating eel because, yeah, it's so detrimental to uh, Baltic Sea at the moment. Okay, let's leave the eel alone. Yeah, for, for now. Hopefully it gets better and in a hundred years or so we can start to eat eel again. <laughs> Yay. There'll be eel at my <laughs> funeral yeah, is yeah. my plan. <laughs> In the High Middle Ages, there is a move towards more privatization of fishing waters, mainly to make fishing more efficient. So it's no longer the case that you can always go and fish wherever you want. Some of the fishing waters might belong to a specific farm. On that topic, Swedes were also more free to hunt than elsewhere in Europe. 
partly because of the vastness of the land when we talk about Sweden compared to, for example, England. So it was impossible for kings and noblemen to forbid ordinary people from hunting because, well, how would they ever implement it? The forests are so vast. Uh, that didn't mean that they didn't try. It just was nearly impossible to carry out in practical terms. Yeah, because royal forests and the like really become a big deal in England after the Norman invasion of 1066. They're a huge uh, way of controlling the people and controlling the access to certain foods. There are really strict punishments for hunting in a royal forest in England that uh, begin to be introduced. I don't think uh, William the Conqueror wasn't a really big user of the fines, but his uh, sons and descendants were brought in some really strict punishments for hunting in royal forests. That's interesting to note because by comparison then in Sweden, people are still more free to just go out and set a trap and catch themselves, a, I don't know, a fox maybe. And since microbreweries have become popular in Sweden, like in many other places around the world in recent years, it might be fun to point out that this is the time where beer takes over from mead as the Swedes' favourite drink. The beer in the 11th and 12th centuries didn't really taste like beer does today. I think if you turned up with a, an IPA or something <laughs> yeah. uh, to 12th century Sweden, they'd look at you very funnily. But um, it does share the same overall basis uh, and um, beginnings. And beer making was almost exclusively female-orientated task at the time, and it was women on each farm that made the beer. Unlike today, when it's mainly hipster men with beards and wee woolly hats that make beer. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, Not saying that women don't make beer today. Uh, that's just that's my stereotypical image of someone who makes beer. My dad's friend who has a brewery doesn't have either a woolly hat or a beard or well, actually he might have a little beard but not a huge like hipster beard as you call them um but yeah there's also a change to the actual farmhouses during this period the farms went from having one or two major buildings that contained everything a place to live sleep hold pens for the animals and so on to having many small buildings and huts around a courtyard much more like what we'd imagine a farm to look like today where each building had a separate use and this was good for hygiene i mean you become cleaner and less smelly if you don't sleep in the same building as a pig but it was also bad for heat because you're warmer if you sleep near a pig than if you sleep alone in a house so the uh, one of the sources of heating leaves when you take the pigs out Pros and cons, really, it seems. I, I, I'd probably still prefer to be a little bit cold and not sleep next to a pig. Yeah, I agree. Imagine how much a pig snores. A lot. Yeah. There are, I showed you a video on YouTube of pig snoring the other day. Oh, yeah, you did. Yeah, it's <laughs> good to not sleep next to them then. Buildings were made from wood and stone. Bricks hadn't been introduced yet. Uh, log houses where you build with horizontal logs were popular, as was a building style called post and plank. Sounds like a really rubbish children's TV program. <laughs> <laughs> it does a bit. But um, you can Google post and plank and you see pictures of what these houses look like. But speaking of building styles, in 1060, we get an exciting development on the building front when the first ever stone church in Scandinavia is built in Dalby, outside Lund, then a part of Denmark, but now it's southern Sweden. 
luckily for a lot of people, this period saw the end of thraldom, that large-scale system of slavery that the Vikings had. There isn't one general law or one specific instant of a king or ruler that puts a stop to the practice of owning other humans, but it's more of a gradual process. In fact, it's so gradual that there's evidence to suggest that some of the areas that are more remote or further away from the rest of society lag behind in this process to the point where the last thralls might not have even been freed until the beginning of the 1300s. But nevertheless, this is where we start to begin this gradual change to the end of thraldom. One reason for releasing the thralls was that it's even though it's cheap to keep these thralls because you don't have to pay them wages, you do have to buy the food for them and keep them clothed and healthy enough to the point where they're able to work full-time for you. And this is even the case where if there's no work for them to do because of the weather or whatever the conditions are happening on your farm at that time, you still have to feed them and clothe them if you want them to survive until the next time where you need a load of slaves to come around and help you farm. So that means there are some significant costs involved. So where the local wealthy farmers and others who would own slaves would have kept these thralls full time what they did was release them from slavery give them a tiny plot of land from your own farm for them to use themselves and live on and during the labor intensive periods like the harvest you would all pull together and help out each other and go back to the wealthy farmer and say okay i'm here now thanks for giving me this little tiny bit of land now i'm here to help out during the harvest in a way, whilst the thralls obviously benefited from this because they were now free and it's fundamentally horrifically wrong to own other people, the farmers and other wealthy people also benefited because they didn't have to pay for food and clothes for people when there was no work. Uh, they could also adapt the number of people they needed to work from year to year, which they couldn't when they had thralls. If you have 10 thralls and it's a bad harvest that year, so you'd actually only need five thralls to work for you, you still have all the 10 thralls. So in a way you make a net loss. Whereas if you just use these former thralls, now turned small pulled crofters, then you only get the five you need to come and work for you. And if it's a better harvest next year, you can get 15 to come and work for you and so on. So it's uh, the system is more adaptable. A very significant downside to all of this is that life becomes much more uncertain for the thralls now turned crofters. Because if you're one of those five thralls that the farmer doesn't need because the harvest isn't as good that year well, then you've got no work and no income and you and your family are going to starve because often the little plot of land that you were given isn't enough to sustain you. You have to work for the larger farms and when there is no work, well, yeah, then you starve. These liberated thralls turned crofters who work for the farmers became the new Swedish rural working class and in many ways this will stay all the way up until the 20th century where the last push of industrialization, urbanization and technological changes to the farming industry changed the rural society in Sweden forever. 
This group of people get a name, and they're called Legoyun. The first part of that word, Lego, or Lego, it has nothing to do with the famous toy building blocks from Denmark, no. but rather comes from the word Lega, which is an old Swedish word for renumeration or lease or loan. Jun is an old Swedish word which means a person who is dependent on something. So that pretty much summarizes what this new group of people were when they were dependent on the renumeration gained from working on other people's lands. The Lego-based etymology is also very handy to remember for the future when we talk about mercenary soldiers in Sweden because they're called Lego soldat, which means Lego soldiers or <laughs> lease soldiers. Yeah. They weren't soldiers made out of Lego bricks. They were leased soldiers. Yeah, so I think Denmark would have won if they only had to invade and push over a few Lego soldiers. But when I'm talking about Lego, this rural working class that grows out of the freed slaves is really here to stay from now on and will only get bigger and bigger over time. A group of people who were not rich enough to own their own land and who are, if not forced, then at least dependent on working on richer farmers' lands is going to be there for the rest of Swedish history, almost. Yeah. So from now on, when we talk about the kings, queens, generals, and nobles, it's worth keeping in mind that the Legoyun was what life was actually like for a large number, if not majority, of Swedes in terms of raw numbers. That's very well said, because yes, history has a tendency to focus on kings and queens and generals in battle but you know if we were to swap lives with swedes throughout history from now on likelihood is that we'd end up being a legoyun that's what a lot of people were and whilst life continued to be very hard for many people in sweden and whilst many if not most continued to be relatively unfree in the sense that you were bound by both dependency on others and you were bound by societal conventions, it is still worth celebrating, at least a tiny bit, that from now on, people don't own other people in Sweden. That's pretty good. Sweden will get involved a little bit in the transatlantic slave trade in a few hundred years' time, and we certainly had no qualms about exploiting prisoners of war in the many wars that Sweden will get involved with during the centuries to come. But in Sweden proper, people stop owning other people. And that's pretty great. That is pretty good. One thing to note is that serfdom, another term for various uh, arrangements of farming in other parts of Europe, didn't really become a thing in Sweden. Serfdom developed in many parts of Europe around about now, in the early Middle Ages, and is perhaps most associated with Russia, and was a state of indentured servitude that many peasants lived under during the feudal period of history. But it never takes hold in Sweden. Um, it does to some extent in Denmark, which would have had an impact on those areas of modern-day Sweden that was then Denmark. But yeah, it never came up north to Sweden. We've not been able to find too many explanations as to why serfdom doesn't take hold here. But if some of our listeners know uh, a little bit more about that, do let us know. But from what we've read, historians seem to chalk it up to the fact that individual farmers with smaller holdings were a strong societal group in Sweden. And they kept the rich noblemen and kings and others who wanted to implement serfdom at bay a bit. 
Moreover, as farming communities, villages and individual farms grew, the need to coordinate work became increasingly important. Uh, the family unit was still the most important societal unit on a micro level. Marriage was the norm, as it had been already in the Viking Age. And with the increased presence of Christianity, another layer was added to this, the idea that marriage was a holy union. So, yes, marriage is very much the norm. But above the family unit, we have something called byalog. Uh, in English, that translates to village team. This was a collective of farmers that all lived in close proximity to each other and had to cooperate for survival. It wasn't a formalized unit as such, uh, in the sense that it wasn't formed by decree from a king or a local official, but rather arose from the need to make joint decisions regarding land. To understand the importance of the Bialog, we should know that land was owned and farmed differently during this period than it is today. It gets a bit complicated, so bear with me for a sec. Land wasn't communally owned as such, but rather belonged to each individual farm. But at the same time, the land belonging to one farm wasn't all allocated next to and connected to that farm. So in practice, you didn't necessarily farm the plots of land that were closest to your farm building, but rather you farmed on plots of land that were spread all over your village area. And this is a land tenure system that was developed in Sweden during this period and would exist until the 1750s. So you couldn't just, say, own three football pitches worth of land around your house, even if you wanted to. This was because each farm should have an equal share of the type of land in the area. So say there were 10 farms in one village and there was one big chunk of land that was excellent for growing crops on. Just because that was next to Orsa's house doesn't mean that Orsa gets all of that land. It means that each farm in that village gets one-tenth of that land. Then over the road, there was a great chunk of land that wasn't so good for growing crops, but was really great for keeping our cows on. So just because that was next to my farm doesn't mean that I'm the only one who gets to put cows on there. Everybody gets to put one-tenth of the size of the land have their cow on them. So there was a chunk of land also that had forest on it, etc., etc. Everybody gets one-tenth of it because ten people live in this town. It doesn't matter how close it is to respected people's houses or main farm building. Yeah, it was a somewhat messy, but in essence, quite a fair system. And it became increasingly important when the practice of leyland that Chris talked about earlier became standard practice. In practice, it meant that the family on one farm walked around the village to tend to their land and the byalog needed to administrate all of this, be a forum for joint decision and settle disputes and, yeah, just, just manage the system, really. Yeah, and this might be a bit difficult to wrap our heads around today when most of us don't tend land as our basic job or day-to-day -day activity. But this was going to be fundamental for Swedish life from now on up until the 1750s and become so embedded that when it does change, it's such a huge shift in society that it's you know comparable in some ways to a, a revolution. Yeah, definitely. But anyway, let's just say that this type of farming and managing land is called sohifta in Swedish, 
and there isn't really a term for it in English, came to dominate people's lives, both socially, financially, and in how their day-to-day life and day at work, so to speak, was managed. Actually, the reason why there doesn't seem to be a word for it in English could be because, as far as I'm aware, this system was only practiced in Sweden and Finland. In all the research that I've done, I've not come across evidence that suggests that it was done anywhere else. Which is interesting because, like I said, it's an essentially fair system and it was done for some 700 years here. Uh, So it's interesting that it could be so isolated. But I could have missed something. Uh, If you know of a similar practice being done in other countries, then it would be really interesting to, uh, to know. So send us a message or post on social media because uh, maybe it wasn't a purely Swedish-Finnish practice, just that in my research I haven't come across anything else. Yeah, but either way, it did happen in Sweden and that's yeah. the most important thing for our podcast. In some ways, some of the pretty fundamental changes that develop in Sweden during this time will have an impact on people's lives for centuries to come. And there are now more Swedes on more cultivated land and they've got new and improved stuff to help them do it. And new ways of carrying out their day-to-day work and living their lives with their neighbours and co-workers. Yeah, that's an excellent Short and sweet summary. Thank you very much. Uh, We haven't talked much about the way the country was ruled from the top uh, because there are quite a few changes that we will get to when we look at the kings of this period, some slightly more in-depth than others, uh, as there are many changes in the crown. The crown sits on many different heads in these 100 years, and... Not all the kings have a lot of information about them. Uh, we have been spoiled with Erik Segosel and Olof Skånung. Uh, so now that we know a bit about what life looked like in Sweden and, and uh, the societal changes, in two weeks we'll be back with an episode about the kings that followed Olof Skånung, his two sons. Onund and Emund, and all the things that they got up to. But for now, I hope this episode has provided a good general overview of the gradual changes and developments in Sweden as we move on from the Vikings and more firmly into the Middle Ages. But before we go, we've had quite a lot of new reviews recently, so we're going to read one out first and save two for next time. So the review we're going to read out today uh, was back on the 3rd of January. Uh, That was by ETR Reviews NYC on iTunes. And it's called A Fun and Thought-Provoking Approach to Swedish History, Five Stars. And this was like probably the coolest and really nicest review we've had. So chuffed. Thank you so much for, for this review. So sweet. And thank you. Yeah, so ETR Reviews NYC writes, This is the first podcast that I binge listen to, and for good reason. Listening to Orsa and Chris discuss Swedish history is like sitting down with friends over a good dinner. Conversational and fun. What makes it doubly rewarding is the way they address meta-issues of history as they unfold the narrative. Their treatment makes the material both engaging and thought-provoking at the same time. So I hope you enjoyed this slightly more meta episode. And thank you so much for writing that amazing review. And yeah. 
So kind of you. At the moment, that's all we can do to thank you is read it out and give you a bit of a name check. But thank you so much. And uh, yeah, that's great. Uh, add to our lovely list of reviews on iTunes. And that, I had to say that, that was on the American iTunes. Uh, yes, and we got two more to read out next time. We're actually a little bit further back in time. So we sort of had a bit of a... Because we record some of these episodes a bit in advance. Um, we haven't had time to read out these ones recently. Until next time, don't forget to follow us on social media. We're at Flatpack Sweden on Twitter and a Flatpack History of Sweden on Facebook. You can also get in touch with us via email on flatpackhistorysweden, or one word, flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com. And until next time, it's goodbye from us. Hey, Dor. Bye bye.